Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4, verse 32 is where we'll begin today. In the middle of a message series entitled Life on Mission. It's actually our theme for the whole year, Life on Mission. Not somebody else's life, but your life, my life. We live on mission for Christ. To help us connect with that mission, reconnect with that mission, we're going through the book of Acts together as a congregation. If you haven't gotten on board with this yet, it's not too late. We're literally reading through the book of Acts, each of us in our, in our daily devotions. I have included in the live event on the Bible app uh, a, 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 a link to a devotional guide, a reading guide, and it lets you read a little less than a chapter a day to help us get all the way through the book of Acts together. So if you have a smartphone or, or any kind of uh, iPhone, iPad device, find that Bible app, the Version Bible app, and go to the live event for today or any other Sunday and link up with that devotional guide and, and be reading with us. Um, Acts chapter 4 is where we are today. I want to start in verse 32 and, and go over in, in, into chapter 5. Of course, we're looking at sort of the, the birth of the church, the earliest days of the church. And people often will say that they wish they could find a church. They'd like to be a part of a church that's just like the early church. And I don't know exactly what you think the early church was like. We often assume that it was much, much different, more pure somehow than the church we have today. And today's scripture itself will, uh, will perhaps give you a more realistic picture of how the early church was more or less like the church we have today. One of the criticisms of the church in, in every age, but especially our age, is, is that there are just so many hypocrites. People say, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd go to church, but there are just so many hypocrites there. So let me just ask you, those of you who are here, I figure you, you know church better than anybody else. When people talk about the hypocrites in church, do you think they're overestimating how many hypocrites are here? When they say, I can't go to church, too many hypocrites, are they overestimating? Y- y'all aren't even going to talk about this with me, are you? Um, my hunch is, and I feel like I'm something of a, a, a doctor in church life, I, I think I know something about church life. Uh, I think there are more hypocrites than they know. If the ones they know keep them away, their heads would explode with the ones they don't know. You you understand? There are just more hypocrites than than they know. Now, now I don't say that with, with any sort of of, of, of glibness or lightheartedness. It's devastating that there are so many of us bad Christians. It, it's devastating that there are. Because according to the book of Acts, we have one job, one purpose. The church is in the world, but because we're witnesses. In other words, we've seen something, and, and we've heard something, and we've experienced something about Jesus, and we live to tell about that. that that's our one purpose. That's why the church is on earth. We live to tell. We live to be witnesses. And, and that means that people need to be able to rely on what we say. If we say we've seen something, we say we've heard something, we've experienced something, then we should be truthful and we should be reliable witnesses. And this is why when when we are hypocritical, when we are not reliable, when we do not tell the truth or live the truth, it, it absolutely undermines everything that the church represents. When people are turned off by hypocrites, they should be. That they should be, because everything about the church is sort of dependent upon our ability to be reliable witnesses to the reality of Jesus Christ. And the, the bottom line is, the gospel is actually the news of transformation, the, the good news that Jesus changes a person. And the gospel of transformation cannot be advanced by untransformed people. You understand what I'm saying? If the good news in Jesus is that sins can be forgiven and and, and lives can be new, but we don't look new, 
If the gospel is a gospel that in Christ there's a new creation, old things are passed away, but with you and me, old things haven't passed away, we don't have any credibility when we stand up before the world and preach this gospel of transformation. If we're not transformed, we don't seem to know what we're talking about. It's devastating that one of the things you can say about the church is that there's so many hypocrites. In other words, the real danger, the real threat to the church is not the world outside. The real threat to the church comes from inside. And there's not a thing new about it. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Let's start there, and then we will go down. You'll notice that there's a summary statement given in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Then you get two close-ups. It's like you get a a group picture of the church that's pretty good, but then you zoom in. We're going to get a positive example, and then we're going to get a bad example. Uh, A couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Let's go. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Here's the group picture. Here's the summary statement. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was upon them all. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give those in need. For instance, here's a close-up. There was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles. But let me give you another example. But there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, they kept the rest. And Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wish, and after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. Soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what it, not knowing she'd missed her husband's graveside service. Understand that? Not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, was this the price you and your husband received for the land? Yes, she replied, that was the price. Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. Now, now this would kill a Sunday morning, would you not? Would, would you not? She fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Well, I imagine so. Great, great fear. 
Back to verse 32 with me. Let's, let's go back to the, to the good news. Go back to the, the sort of a, a, a group picture. It's, it's a picture of all the church together. And, and when you summarize what made the early church the early church, it really is a beautiful, beautiful picture. What comes first? First off, all the believers were, say the word, verse 32, united. All the believers were united in, in heart and mind. They had one heart, one mind. This is sort of an appeal to, to the Greek way of thinking, Greek philosophy. Aristotle used to talk about the ideal friend, the ideal, the perfect friendship. Now, he considered this completely unattainable in this world, but he said if you could have the perfect friend, the perfect friendship would be like having one soul and two bodies. Isn't that beautiful? You ever had a friend like that? One soul in two bodies. So very literally, Luke uses that kind of language here to describe the church. In other words, what some people had thought was completely unattainable, the kind of friendship, the kind of closeness, the kind of unity that you would think would only exist somewhere in heaven, Luke is saying this is what the church experiences. Something like one soul, one heart, one mind, in this day, in 5,000 bodies. Isn't that beautiful? That kind of unity. That's what we're supposed to have. It's not an impossible dream because of the Holy Spirit. When we have the Holy Spirit that makes us one, there should be nothing that could divide us. Do you understand? So we should be one soul, one heart, one mind in ever how many hundred bodies. That is the church. They felt that they owned, what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles, verse 33, the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So if the first characteristic is unity, the second, I would say, is, is witness. There is this powerful witness with the early church that they testify with this incredible boldness, but then the, the boldness is matched by God's incredible power. Now, if you're reading along, remember back earlier in Acts chapter 4, the church prays a prayer, and it's a dangerous prayer, and they specifically pray that they will show up with boldness, and then God will show up with power. We'll show up with boldness, Lord, and you show up with power. And that's exactly what they're living out. It's the answer to their prayer. There is this boldness about their witness that comes from them and this power that comes from the Holy Spirit. And the Lord is adding every single day to the number of those hearing that message and getting saved. There is a bold witness that goes with their amazing unity. And then I'll put last this incredible radical sharing it's mentioned twice in these verses, but I'll go ahead and put it down in verse 34. There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give those in, in, in need. It says they shared everything they had. This radical sharing was a part of the early church. This radical taking care of those in need. In, in other words, in, in the infancy of the church, in the earliest days, the gospel of Jesus was instant, instant good news to the poor. It was instant good news to the poor because church people just came in and they shared everything they had with one another. Notice that at first here, this language, it's, it's not really about taking care of the world, although that's their purpose, that's their passion, but they really take good care of one another. 
The church is very devoted first to Jesus, but, but, but the unity in Christ is one soul walking around in, in, in hundreds of bodies. It just makes them love each other and care for one another. If we're united in this way and I have a need, you're going to want to take care of me and I'm going to want to take care of you. You understand? It's this beautiful interdependence that was a part of the earliest church. So do you think it's a part of of this church and, and other churches you may have visited or known? Unfortunately, this kind of radical sharing, I don't think we see very often. And let's just be honest, I don't think we see it here very often. Now, we're all good people and, and we love each other, but there's something different about us and it's not a good different. You understand? It's something that makes us somewhat removed from the church that the Holy Spirit intends us to be. If you look at the gospel of Luke in the book of Acts and read this with seriousness. This is how we're supposed to be. Radically sharing, radically giving to one another. But, but we don't necessarily do that. Why don't we do that? Well, I would just put it this way. Part of it's because we live in the United States. We live in one of the most prosperous nations in the world. So bottom line, you and I can afford to live our lives as if we don't need anybody. We can afford to live like we don't need anybody. And so for the most part, we don't think we need anybody. We don't really want to need anybody, now do we? We will pretend, we will act, we will live as if we don't, and for the most part, we can afford to. There are some of us who struggle paying bills, but even those who struggle paying bills, you don't really very often ask for help around here. We will do almost anything to keep from needing anybody, and most of us can afford not to need anybody. But the point is, we shouldn't. This is not how you live in the body of Christ. This is not how the church is supposed to operate. This is something of but probably really, if we could put our finger on one of the real problems with the church today and the problems with this church, this is probably it. We try to be independent, each of us. Even though Christ has put us in, in, in the church so that we can share and care for one another, we honestly try to separate ourselves in such a way where we don't need anything from anybody. And, and therefore, we don't expect that anybody's going to need anything from us. We just like to come to church and sit next to each other in pews. And some of you, even just you know, offering a handshake or a good morning, that's, that's just almost like asking too much from you. People honestly want to come to church and nearly be anonymous. Just sort of walk in and let nobody speak to them at all. Some of you would be really happy if you could come in and out. Actually, some of you do. You sort of go in and out that door, out the front door. You, you park in Portland and just so you never have, to, never have to walk past anybody. And I understand maybe you're introverted or, or, or whatever, but the point is, if you're wondering what's wrong with the church, it, it, it's this separation, this independence that some of us fiercely defend. We're fiercely independent. We really don't want to entangle our lives with each other. But you've got to understand, Christ brings us together so that we can love and care for one another. His purpose, his plan for taking care of you is to care for you through God's people. This is his plan. So you pray and you wonder why you feel so alone. You wonder why Jesus doesn't somehow provide for you. And I'm telling you, he wants to provide for you. And he's probably wanting to provide for you with the people in this room. The people you go to church with. 
This is why it doesn't exactly work to get all of your church from the internet or just watching services on, on, on the computer, on your iPhone, because your iPhone can't help you when you're in need. Also, it's kind of why I just, you know, I've heard people say, you know, Pastor Tim, we sometimes like going to Woodburn, but really, you know, Joel Osteen is, is, is really our pastor. Yeah, well, not being smart, but, you know, next time somebody dies, call Joel Osteen to preach the funeral. Um, you understand? He's not your pastor. He can't be your pastor. I know he smiles at the TV at you and you feel like his eyes just hypnotize you. But he can't see you. He doesn't know you. You see, he can't be your pastor. That church can't be your church. If you don't believe me, just tell him you're having trouble with your electric bill and see what happens. They're not going to take care of you. That's what the church is for. That's why you need to plug into a local church. And you need to be a part of this. We love and we care for each other. This is how it happens. It's not really complicated. Step one, ask for what you need. Step one, ask for what you need. You should ask for what you need because it is foolish not to ask. I'm not calling you a fool, but you're a fool. <laughs> to walk in and out of here needing stuff and never ask anybody, that's just foolish not to ask. Now, I, I know how you do. You're just sort of hoping we'll know. You know, and, and some of you even play that game, well, well, well you ought to know. You know, it's like we ask you how you're doing and you won't tell us and then you act like we should know. If you don't tell us, we don't know. We can't know. You have to ask for what you need. Now, some of you might even just sort of give us strong hints. You give us hints. Let me tell you, we are dense. We will not pick up on your hints. We're not going to get your hints. So stop giving us hints. You understand? And for that matter, when you put an anonymous note in the plate, that doesn't help us either. An anonymous note, we don't know how to help you if you're going to try to put a note in the plate, but you don't put your name on it. What are you thinking? None of us can read your mind, and we can't help you until you are willing to ask for what you need. I'm speaking to every single one of us because some of you are already sitting here thinking, there's not anything I need. You should understand, if you're sitting here thinking there's nothing you need, you might be the most needy person in this room. There are lots and lots of ways to be poor. And some of the very richest people in the world are so spiritually bankrupt, so emotionally, relationally bankrupt. I don't care how much money you have in your wallet, you probably don't have a friend to your name. So ask for what you need. Just ask. Ask somebody. Tell somebody. Don't try to act like there's nothing that you need. One of our senior ladies, she's with the Lord now, God bless her. I loved her more than anything, but she went in the hospital. She's in the hospital three days before I found out. And I got there and she said, I was, just, I was wondering when you get here. <laughs> Is this a game? I mean, you don't tell me and then you're just sitting there waiting to see how long it takes me to, to get there. I, I asked for what you need. If you don't ask, then you're just not even allowed to complain that nobody was there. 
Understand? If, if you won't ask, then you just are not entitled to get mad and leave this church and say, nobody cares. No, it's not that nobody cares. At this church, the problem is nobody asks. We walk in and out of this place like we don't need anything, and it really is poisonous to the church. Ask. Ask for what you need, and then magically, step number two, give what you have. Earlier, when you were reading this week, you got to the story of Peter, John in the temple. They come across the lame man who, who asked for alms. And Peter, John said, man, we don't have any money to give you. But what we do have, we're happy to give you. And what do they give him? Yeah, Jesus. In the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Yeah. Well, shoot. He didn't know that was an option. He's asking for money. He didn't even know to ask for legs. You understand? They didn't have Uh, money to give, but what they did have to give, they gave. And that's the simple, simple principle. Just give what you have. And so we think, Brother Tim, we live paycheck to paycheck. I don't know what what, what we'd have to give. We don't have a lot of money to give. This is what I'm telling you. Don't focus on what you don't have. Nobody's expecting you to give what you don't have to give. So stop thinking about what you don't have to give and give what you have. Just give what you have. This is how we take care of one another. Chances are what I've got, and I'm thinking this isn't anything, I wouldn't even think to give it. It might be exactly what you need. So when you ask for it, then I think, well, shoot, I can give that to you. I didn't know that. Guy walked in the door this week at church and said, oh, I need, I, I need some help. And I'm thinking, oh, no, Warren's not here. Oh, my goodness, I, I'm in way over my head. I said, sir, what can I do for you? He said, I just need some baloney. Baloney? Baloney, I can do. Who needs Warren Weeks? I can do baloney. Man, he got, I got baloney and Little Debbie's too, man. I, mean, I can do Little Debbie's and baloney. No idea what he was going to ask, but once he asked, I thought, well, yeah, well, that's, what, that's, that's what you need, baloney. I'll give you baloney. You, you, you give what you have. You give what you have. Here's the little rule that goes with this. Do not give money to avoid giving yourself. Do not give money to avoid giving yourself. That's a problem with some of us who actually have a little money. This is the trap that we fall into. Because I'm telling you, people who are poor are not poor because they don't have money. They're poor because they don't have friends. If you're homeless, you may have a lot of problems, but but the real problem is you have used up everybody in your life, so now you don't even have a friend who'll let you sleep on their couch. You understand? The the real poverty is always a poverty of friendship. They don't have friends. So what people always need more than anything else is friendship. They need you in their life. But that is what we either consciously or, or subconsciously know, and that's why we'd rather give money. Often I give money so that I don't have to look you in the eye. I give you money so that you'll go out the door and then, and then we won't have to be involved. You understand? I, I give you money for a hotel room because I really, really don't want you to come and sleep in one of my two extra bedrooms. You understand? So literally we often use money as a way of keeping ourselves at a distance from other people. And that is not how the church is supposed to operate. We're not trying to stay away from people. We want to draw near to people. And and at the point of a person's need, that's the best point to come in and and become a friend. 
You know how they say that nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care? Well, well, this is where it starts right here. You get involved with people at the point of their need. They ask for what they need, and then you give what you have or vice versa. And this is how we begin to come together. Now, this is obviously how it was supposed to work in the early church. For instance, there was a man named Joseph. Notice it's this big picture, and then we get two close-ups. The first close-up is actually a pretty good shot. This is a good example. His name is Joseph, but they call him Barnabas. His nickname is Barnabas, which is son of encouragement. That's such a good nickname. Y'all call me something like that behind my back, please. Son of encouragement. That's good. So just as an example, Barnabas, he sold some property that he had, and he brought that in, and he gave it to the church, and then the church distributed that to those in need. That's the kind of thing we do. We have benevolence ministry where a portion of the offerings you give every week goes to help those in need. Uh, on a typical week, we'll help one or two people, and, and that's not because we limit it. We just are here out in the, in the county. We don't have a lot of people walking in off the street to ask for help. But in a typical week, just so you know, we average one, sometimes two, just by average, one or two times a week, somebody will walk in and ask for help. About half of the time, that person is a church member. And I think that's good. We need to be helping each other. But about half the time, it's a church member. The rest of the time, it's somebody from the community. Okay? But we do everything we can to help people. Now, we don't necessarily publicize that because lots of times that's considered very private information. So as a result, you don't always know how often we're helping or how many people that we're helping. I just want to remind you that we're always helping people. I also want to remind you that it's not necessarily healthy that you don't know anything about it. If all of the helping we do is private secret, if the only person who ever knows who we help is Warren Weeks, then I'm not sure that's exactly the picture that, that, that we get in the New Testament where everybody shares everything with one another. It's the one anotherness that's lost when it just sort of goes through a church system and we never see the people that we help and the people who help us never even know it was us. You understand? That's impersonal. Now, we'll continue to do it that way because people get help that way. But I'm telling you, that can't be the only way we help each other under the table behind the scenes. Barnabas does it this way. It's a good example. But then in walks Ananias and Sapphira. They're doing the same thing, aren't they? Well, it's, it's weird. It's weird. There was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. Okay, what is the issue here? Is it money? No, it is truthfulness. It's truthfulness. It's not the money. Peter makes it plain. Ananias, what in the world are you thinking? That property was yours. The money was yours. You didn't even have to give it. And you could have given all of it. You could have given part of it. It was completely up to you. But why did you decide to lie? You told a lie, and you didn't even have to lie. There was no reason whatsoever to lie. Whatever you chose to do, you were free to do. So you understand this? There's no compulsion for everybody to sell everything and bring it in. That, that nobody's enforcing that. It's just that Ananias and Sapphira wanted you to think that's what they were doing. They just wanted to appear that they were much, much more committed than they were. Understand that? The 
issue is not money, it's truthfulness. But I will say this, your true self comes out when your wallet comes out. I mean, I think I can say that. It's really not about money, but, but money tends to bring it our true self. And Ananias and Sapphira, when, when, when it's time to take up the offering, their true selves come out. Because honestly, they're not truthful. Honestly, these are hypocrites. How in the world did the hypocrites spring up this fast? You would think it would take a while. This is the earliest days of the church. I mean, absolutely early days. And all of a sudden, the hypocrites have come out. Ananias and Sapphira, I guess, are the very first named hypocrites in Scripture. But here they are. And it all comes out when it comes to their money. And it's the dumbest thing ever because they don't even have to pretend. Nobody said you got to give it all, but they wanted everybody to believe that they were. So you got this example. It's Barnabas. He's all in. He's just genuine. He's just himself, and he's encouraging. And, and that's just Barnabas. He's completely committed. Understand? And then you got Ananias and Sapphira, and they want you to think they're completely committed, but they're not. So can I just say it this way? Just sort of a rule for church. Be all in. Or don't be all in. Just don't be fake. Be all in. Or don't be all in. I don't really mean don't be all in. I want you to be all in. But if you're not going to be all in, just don't be all in. Just don't be fake. Ananias and Sapphira are fake. They act like they're completely committed. They act like they are what Jesus was. They act like they are what Barnabas is. But they're not. They're fake. And they don't have to fake it, that they really don't. We'd be much better off if they would just be what they are and understand what they are is not all in. Peter says it. Nobody's making you give all that money, so why are you trying to make it look like you are? You know, you have the option of actually being a, a real good Christian. You have that option. But if you're not, why do you try to pretend like you are? I mean, doesn't Jesus himself say, be hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I just want to spit you out of my mouth? You read that verse before? I mean, be, be committed or don't be committed, but just don't be fake. In other words, it, it's, it's a really serious kind of sin to try to act like you're, you're some kind of great Christian when you're not. So it turns out the real danger from the church, it, it comes out really, really early, and it's, it's hypocrisy. And you'll notice it's, a, it's dealt with very, very seriously in this instance. Now, it's not that Peter pronounces some kind of curse. He doesn't. He just confronts them with the truth. But Ananias and Sapphira, they fall dead. I don't know if it's the fear. I don't know if it's literally the Holy Spirit who strikes them dead. The Scripture doesn't really say. All that I know is that these hypocrites, they fall dead this day within three hours of one another. Hypocrisy is, is, is dangerous the danger of hypocrisy is, is, is kind of in two directions. The, the, the first real danger, first off, is that you actually start believing your own lie. 
If you wear a mask for a long time, eventually you forget what your actual face looks like. And some of us have been fake at church for so long now that we actually don't even think of it as being fake anymore. We just think that that's normal. And it is not normal to be fake. Some of us have been faking it so long that we no longer even feel any guilt over it. It's just what we do. We cruise in church. Our children see us do it. We come in church and we just turn on a different kind of person. And we no longer even feel any tension over the contradiction. The danger first is that we begin to believe our own lie. The worst danger, though, is that we begin to forget who it is we're lying to. You think you're just fooling people, and you might fool people because we're pretty gullible. I mean, we, we probably think you are what we see you to be because we don't know any different. But, but this is what Peter says to Ananias and Sapphira. He says, well, why do you lie to the Holy Spirit? It's not about lying to the church. You can lie to the church. I, I mean, I guess people do that all the time. But don't you understand? It's actually God that you're lying to. It's the Holy Spirit that you're lying to. I mean, this is his church. It's not my church, it's not the deacon's church, it's not any of your church. This is the Lord's church. So when you choose to be fake here, when you try to present yourself, pull yourself off as something that you're not here, it's not the people that you're lying to, it's the Lord that you're lying to. You're lying to him. How long do you think he's going to put up with your lie? How long do you think he's going to be entertained with your little church show? Verse 9, Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? The young men who buried your husband, Sapphira, are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. Great fear gripped the entire church. You know, they had unity. They had sharing. They had this powerful witness. And now the entire church has what? Fear. Where does that fear come from? The power of God, the holiness of God, you should have some fear. I don't know that it may be just a little closer to home than that. Something tells me that if I really believe that, um, that being a hypocrite could get you killed, we might all be in trouble. You understand? I mean, if hypocrites are going to start dropping dead in this place, we better, we better find the exit. We might all be in trouble. Because truthfully, aren't we all kind of hypocrites? I mean, aren't we all? Because I guess the only way not to be a hypocrite, I I don't know, I I can't be perfect. I I can't be a perfect Christian. I can't be a perfect pastor. God help me, I would love to only stand up here ever and preach the things that I practice. I want to be the preacher who practices what he preaches. But y'all, if I could only preach the things that I daily practice, I wouldn't have much to preach. I'm not perfect. 
You're not perfect either. So if we can't be perfect and we're not going to be hypocritical, what could we be? I just say this. You can't be a perfect Christian. I can't either. But you can be an authentic one. I can't be perfect, but that does not mean that I should be fake. Why can't we just be real with each other? Why can't we just be honest? Why can't I be the preacher who just says, you know, I know this is what the Bible says, and you all pray for me that I'll be able to walk more, more closely in it. I mean, can I not be that kind of preacher? And can we not just all kind of be the people that, that don't pretend that we don't need anything from each other? That, that we don't really have needs that, that we, I mean, can we not pretend that we need friends and, and that we're really lonely people? And even though we're in a room full of 600 people, somehow it doesn't, it doesn't in any way quench that longing for, for love and, and attention and affection from people. The church in its earliest days was, was completely united, like one soul walking around in thousands of bodies. Isn't that beautiful? I want that kind of unity. The church had this incredible purpose, and they went out in this powerful ability to witness. They would show up with boldness, and the Spirit would show up with power. I want that for us. But at the same time, there was this radical way that they just loved and took care of of one another. And of all that beautiful strength that the church had, you know, the, you know, the one thing that, that, that just could sort of ruin it all, church people being fake. Church people being fake, brothers and sisters. It ruins it all. Let's pray. If it's mine, it's, it's yours. If it's yours, it's mine. Lord, just help us to have that attitude. Lord, we want that kind of unity. We want that kind of power in witness. We want to be able to share radically like that. So Lord, just help us to be willing to ask for what we need and to give what we have. We know we can't be perfect. Lord, help us to stop being so fake pray these things in the name of Jesus, who alone can show us our true face. Amen.